the reading of the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. So uh, let us hear the word of God proclaimed from Isaiah. May God give us uh, ears of faith to hear what the prophet has said. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. After the writing of this text, uh, things were very dark in the nation of Israel. Uh, Ahaz was uh, king. He was an evil king. And uh, as such, he was bringing ruin upon the nation. Uh, the world powers were beginning to cast their eyes upon Judah. Uh, Babylon is on the horizon. Everything seems to be turning uh, south or turning the wrong way. Uh, gloom and darkness seems to prevail. And in the midst of this uh, political climate, uh, the prophet Isaiah explodes with the greatest news of all time. Chiefly that God will restore prosperity with his appointed ruler and son. Uh, both uh, spiritually, uh, now in the present age, but of course materially in the age yet to come. Uh, the immediate uh, context of uh, these verses uh, set the stage, if you look at Verse 22, last verse of Isaiah chapter 8, reading down through the first verse of Isaiah chapter 9. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now notice the phrase that later on, something dramatic is going to occur. Now we know what that is, verses 6 and 7. Uh, so Isaiah is telling us something that's uh, unique for us as Christians. Uh, I think one of the easiest things to do in life, in my own mind, perhaps it's not fair of you, but that's just a fall in, become a bad news bear. Everything's wrong, everything's going south. Uh, everything is topsy-turvy. How can I make any sense of it all? Uh, but Isaiah is telling us that the gloom is never permanent, and it never really is. Uh, and then so we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. So something dramatic is being foretold by the prophets. And what might that be? Well, the Bible's going to tell us. I'm not telling you this. The Bible is going to tell us what that is. If you have your New Testament, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, because Matthew and Luke uh, have these verses being fulfilled uh, in the coming uh, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, in verse 16. 
Uh, John has been uh, taken into custody, thrown into jail. That was bad news. Terrible news, particularly if you were a disciple of, of uh, John. And Jesus uh, withdraws into Galilee. Uh, and then we read latter part of verse 12. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. You can see the allusion there to the prophet Isaiah. And this was to fulfill, spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land, in the shadow of death, upon them, the light dawned. Christ is the fulfillment of that. There's always going to be darkness, but for those of us who know the Savior, uh, the light shines upon us. Uh, always bad news. Uh, but the Christ is always uh, the greatest of news. Uh, and in that sense, we should be a people of uh, unbridled optimism. Uh, I'm not unmindful that we go through gloom in life, but the bigger picture is life and light uh, in the Savior. Uh, because what Isaiah is telling us, among many things, but one thing he's telling us for sure, is that he is the answer to darkness. Uh, he's the answer to the dark thoughts that intrude upon your mind. Well, perhaps the uh, dark things that come into your life, uh, bad things happen to all of us because of the fall. But the answer to darkness is the light and life of the Savior. Well, this promise of uh, Isaiah 9, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 1, in Jesus Christ, uh, is detailed for us in uh, verse 6 and 7. In verse 6, we have the promise of a king, and in verse 7, the nature of his kingdom. It is the greatest news of all time. It's like the rising of the sun that puts the darkness in retreat. The rays of the sun bringing light and life. The kingdom in which we live. Uh, the light of the sun shining upon us. The darkness is in retreat. I'm not unmindful there's a great battle being waged between the forces of light and darkness. But darkness is in retreat. Make no mistake about it. How can that be? Because of these two verses. The first promise is of our king uh, couched in the action words of born and given. It's very interesting that uh, the New American Standard, from which I am reading, has both of these verbs in the future tense. But in the Hebrew text, they're in the past tense. In other words, Isaiah is so certain of fulfillment that he uses the past tense. Even Isaiah was an optimist. To speak of such certainty for an event that is yet to occur. As if it has already occurred. It's a profound event of optimism. Uh, the birth of a child, by the way, in a time of crisis is an expression of hope. Generally, when things turn exceedingly bad. People leave off having children because of the gloom of the times. Not so here. These are the worst of times. But Christ is going to come and his light will shine upon us. Twice the prophet makes the action as personal for the text reads, again, two times. A child will be born to us. 
A son will be given to us. That God is engaging the lives of his people. That he is not far away. He is not detached from us. He draws near in this birth. Uh, for us, of course, it's retrospective to Isaiah. It's prospective. But nonetheless, uh, God intervenes. And that intervention, I think, is uh, the cause of the fact that we should live uh, people of unbridled optimism because God gave to us the greatest answer of all time in the birth of the Son. It is an illustration of God's eminence or entrance into time to dispel the gloom of the sadness of the days of Ahaz, who was an evil king in Israel. There's always going to be evil rulers, uh, prime ministers, presidents, whatever the case might be. But for us as a people of God, uh, this is our answer. It's really somewhat foretold in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. It is a stark reminder to me not to base your life on the gloomy predictions of men. Uh, I'm of the opinion, quite frankly, perhaps I'm wrong because my evidence is anecdotal, but I have this deep suspicion uh, that bad news sells more than good news. We are inundated with bad news. It should not be true of us. Because unto us, the child was born. Unto us, the son was given. It's noteworthy that Isaiah makes uh, this birth the birth of a son. uh, Because that makes the son an heir. Uh, And so it is in Psalm 2. I've installed my king in Zion. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. That Jesus will own it all, over every speck of sand in the world in which we live, over every ounce of water in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, There's the reality that it all belongs to the glory of Christ. And I'm not unmindful that there's a battle being waged between the forces of light and darkness, but forces of darkness through their tree. Uh, Jesus asks of his father, and the father's going to give him all of the nations for an inheritance, because he is the messianic heir. And it cannot fail to come to pass, because God issues the promise. Furthermore, this is no ordinary child, for he's clothed in royalty, for Isaiah tells us, that the government and dominion rest upon uh, his shoulders. And it's not just a particular government. You and I live in a dominion called the United States of America, a particular government here. Uh, I used to live in a uh, country down south uh, called Venezuela, time of my birth to the present, ruled by dictators. Uh, You live in different places, you have different governors. Uh, But regardless, if you walk upon this earth, whether you are Christian or not, 
Uh, the government belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate ruler and king. And because of his accomplishments, Isaiah gives us four compound titles attesting to his incomparable majesty before he's even born. How can you imagine such a thing? Isaiah is telling the future here of titles that belong to Jesus Christ. We know that because of the fulfillment in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 1. Uh, do you think it's kind of chancy for Isaiah to ascribe these titles to Christ, not knowing that's going to come to pass? Do uh, you think Isaiah was worried uh, as he's writing these texts? Well, you know, I mean, maybe these things just won't happen. Of course, that's all nonsense. It's the word of the Lord. Uh, certainty. And uh, Christ fulfills it all because of who he is. The great and only ruler. Let's begin with the first. He's wonderful counselor. Uh, the first noun, wonderful, interestingly enough, is used in great redemptive context in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. The wonders of redemption from Egypt and the safe passage through the Red Sea. The wonders of God. By the way, that's, that's happening to you and me, even as I speak. According to the Apostle John, Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is chasing us, trying to destroy us. The earth helps us, and God makes safe passage. It's not that uh, bad things don't happen to our bodies. They do. Uh, but God protects our souls. Uh, we are given safe passage to heaven. Safe passage. Greatest promise of all time. To have safe passage through this earth. The forces of darkness cannot get at us because of the wonders of God and redemption. It's used as well, this word and noun in particular, Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 1. O Lord, thou art my God, I will dwell thee, I will give thanks to thy name, for thou hast worked wonders. Thou hast worked wonders. If you're a Christian, he's worked wonders in your life. Uh, he made you see the light and the life in Jesus Christ. Uh, he moved, who knows, uh, great events uh, in terms of your personality, your way of life. He moved them all. Great wonders uh, in bringing you to himself. Power of redemption in preserving and keeping He speaks to abilities beyond human capabilities, so much so that they create a sense of astonishment. Again, we should never lose the astonishment of the grace of God in saving us, because it's truly a work of manifold wonder. Manifold wonder. Uh, the fierceness of the dragon cannot sweep us away because of the power of Christ. Psalm 77, 11, the psalmist writes of the wonders of old. Remember the wonders of old. The one way as Christians that we can forecast the future, tenuous though it is for us, is by knowing what God did for us in the past. Uh, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us 
all things, securing our salvation to good things. So the past indeed is a prologue to the future. I don't know the specifics of the future, neither do you. God does. And we are children of the great faith, and we live in his hands. And uh, he preserves and protects his own. In your own life, I mean, you're not unlike me. I know we all go through down periods in life. We all get discouraged. Let it be. But at some point, remember the wonders of old as a way of chasing the gloom away. Uh, and the greatest event that has ever, ever happened to us is coming to faith in Jesus Christ, securing eternity. Eternity. No small thing, by the way. Our politicians are desperate, desperate to secure the next quarter. Desperate to secure some type of something for the next election. Christ has secured for us eternity. In the ancient world, as in the world today, rulers have counselors. Our man needs none. He's his own counselor. Turn with me, if you would, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit resting upon Christ in his baptism. He begins his march to Jerusalem, reminding us of, uh, of him whom we know of the fullness of all wisdom and knowledge and insight and counsel. Uh, in other words, uh, our Savior is sufficient entirely within himself. He needs no counsel. He's his own. I, I'm reminded of uh, <clears throat> human governments, not unlike our own. Uh, for example, the President of the United States. He's surrounded by counselors, uh, department heads, uh, joint chiefs of staff, and on and on, uh, council of economic advisors. I mean, they're everywhere. The president, like any ruler, regardless of where it is, needs wise counsel, wise men and women. Our Savior needs none because of who he is. He possesses all wisdom and insight and knowledge, and he even knows the future. He doesn't have a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, because he simply doesn't need one. He knows everything in a simple moment in eternity past, and brings everything to pass according to the will of his gracious Father. What a Savior we know, wonderful counselor. An application of this in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 28, speaks of the, of the gloom of humanity. But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask and give an answer? Behold, all of them are false, their works are worthless, their molten images are wind and emptiness, describing the futility of idolatry, the futility of so many earthly counselors today. We know the only, the best, the greatest of all time. We know the Savior. I mean, not unlike you, I sometimes, uh, you know, 
go to my counselor, my wife, people who are wise, skilled, maybe there's a businessman or woman in your life. I suspect you have many counselors, maybe, maybe an attorney. And, and all of those things have a place that could be used in time. Because again, God calls us to use means. But in terms of the greatest and the only, the last and the everlasting, we know the wonderful counsel. And in him we have the counsel of God. John chapter 1 and verse 18. Christ uh, was in the bosom of the Father. And he explained the Father. The, the Greek ver verb is literally he exegeted the Father. Only the eternal Son can exegete and explain the eternal Father. And we know the eternal Son so that we can know the eternal Father. Great majesty of Christ leaving the bosom of the Father to grant us the wisdom, uh, wisdom of the ages in the Son of God. It all means, of course, that our child is divine. And this is expressed very clearly in the second title. Isaiah tells us he is mighty God. The word mighty speaks of a warrior, a military hero victorious in battle. In our case, he fights for us. Were it, were it not so, by the way, none of us would make it out of this life alive. Were it not so, none of us would enter into eternity. Uh, that our security is sealed because he's mighty God. He's a mighty warrior, ferocious in battle. He fights for us and he's on our side. What a great summons to optimism. And when you know God, you're in the majority. Little else matters. I know men sometimes, evil men, will have their way, but again, on the other, other hand, Christ is on our side. Willing and working, it is his pleasure to rescue his people. Uh, this uh, sense is, as you might expect, uh, everywhere uh, in the New Testament, uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, verse 15, pardon me, uh, says of Christ, when he had disarmed rulers and authorities, he triumphed over them. The great dragon stood in your way for you getting into eternity, and Christ crushed him, rules over him. He can harm our bodies, but not our spirit or our soul. Because we belong to the mighty God, the great warrior, the greatest warrior of all time. Uh, captured for us, I think, in a very beautiful uh, way in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm uh, 110, uh, verses 22. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make 
Your enemies are footstool of your feet. It's exactly what's happening today. That God in Christ is ruling over the spirit world, over the entire world for that matter. Uh, he's making all of his enemies the footstool of his feet. And he says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Uh, we, we sometimes are unmindful of the great reality that you and I as Christians live in a theocracy. I know that's not very popular terminology in a politically correct world today. We don't, sometimes we don't like theocracies. We're wary of religious rulers. Not as Christians. We live in that theocracy. Christ is our ruler. We are sons of the king. Make no mistake. Uh, he's advancing his kingdom and everyone and everything, including the darkness, is in retreat. We can't help but win uh, because he is our mighty God, our warrior king, who protects and preserves and keeps us. Thirdly, he is eternal father. Uh, <clears throat> some Somewhat of a debate over this uh, this uh, word to what it means, but that's true of every word in the scripture. Uh, the standard Hebrew lexicon translates this as father, father of booty, meaning that Messiah distributes the spoils of victory much as a father would care for his family. Uh, illustration of this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, the spiritual gifts that uh, Christ gifts to his church spiritual gifts. Because all of the booty of this uh, this world belongs to him and he distributes it according to his will. Uh, and it's more than spiritual gifts, is it not? Uh, he gives us uh, so much more. Uh, and the son is also a, a father figure because he protects his sons. We are his son. We are in need. He is our guardian. His success in protecting his sons, legendary. I, I oftentimes quote this verse because it provokes within me a sense of wonderment. When Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, I lose none. Of whom can that be said? Men get rich and lose their fortunes. Perhaps if they stay rich, they lose many more things unbeknownst to them. We live in a world of perpetual loss, not true for Christ. He loses none. Most, one of the most incredible pronouncements in all of Scripture. That all whom Christ came to save, he saves. And all that he saves, he protects. None are lost. All will enter eternal glory. He loses none. That's the greatest father figure of all time. I had profound love for my father. He was a great man to me. But he lost many things because he was man. Christ is our father, our protector, our guardian, our shepherd. Does it all. We will enter glory, to be sure. 
Lastly, he is Prince of Peace. Uh, most uh, kingdoms in this world, sad to say, advance by violence and perfidy and lies and corruption. It's just the way that it is. Uh, not so uh, with our Savior. Uh, he is the Prince of Peace. The broader nuance of peace is prosperity and wholeness. Uh, I love the word wholeness. Uh, our lives before Christ were broken and shattered in total disarray. He makes us whole. He heals. And secures for us prosperity. Spiritually, of course, in this life, your life to come, of course, materially. He heals our fractured lives and makes us whole. So think about compressing these four great titles. And what does it all mean? We all need advice. We have the greatest advisor of all time. The eternal word of God. We all need a champion. Christ is our champion. We all need blessings. He reigns upon us spiritual blessings. And someday the treasuries of heaven will open. And all of the grandest material blessings that we could ever imagine. In fact, they are so grand we cannot really imagine them will be rained upon us more without him. And we all need wholeness. Someone to put back together our broken lives. Christ does that. Perhaps it uh, raises the question, uh, important as it should be, can it last? Can it last? Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 13. Even from eternity I am he. And there's none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and no one can reverse it. That's the Savior that we know. He acts and no one can undo what he acts. What he does, pardon Because of his majesty. I find in my life that most everything I do comes undone. It just simply doesn't last. It's the way of life. Not so with Christ. No one can undo what he does. No one can change. Uh, no one can derail his accomplishments. Uh, that his name will be remembered forever as the greatest of all time. That he conquered his people, kept them, preserved them, blessed them, sustained them. And just waiting to reward them with the greatest treasuries of all time. Uh, it cannot be undone. These are immutable facts pertaining to the people of God. I know all of us want for many things in life. There's nothing wrong with that per se. As long as they don't get the best of us and overthrow us. But we do need to stop and think, I think on occasion... That we have in the Savior the greatest of all time. So from King in Isaiah 9 6, we turn to his kingdom. Verse 7. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. No end. My friends, I know in some places in the state of Oklahoma, it's not very popular, but we live in a theocracy. His government is advancing. There is no end to it. If there were an end to it, we of all people would be colossally wasting our time and energy, living a dream that never come to pass. But it is not so. There is no end to the increase of his coming. There are no temporal or geographic limits to his rule. Something of a vision that we read of in Daniel chapter 2, 44th verse. Great trauma for the kingdom of our Lord. The days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The kingdom of Christ. Been inaugurated, started. He's ruling and reigning until he crushes all of the kingdoms of mankind. And what a great appeal to the gospel uh, to have Christ on your side. To know that in uh, the cross, shedding of blood, you remit your sins and dispatching the Spirit who uh, rebirths you uh, to newness of life. And that you become a child of the King, with a kingdom that will, uh, will never end, never be defeated. Uh, legendary the accomplishments of the government of our Savior. In an age of intrigue and conspiracies, Jesus is above it all. It's incredible. He's above it all. Ruling and reigning. Oh, to be on his side. Oh, to be a Christian. And more particularly, it is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as specified by the words in Isaiah 9-7 on the throne of David and over his kingdom. One of the reasons I believe that this has begun is in the Gospel of Luke, first chapter. The angel Gabriel alludes to this verse in his recitation to Mary and her bewilderment about what is soon to happen for her. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 32 to 33. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. I mean, the verbal parallels to Isaiah 9 verse 7 are remarkable. He takes the throne of the great king 
David. But he's the greater king. And he's ruling and reigning. And nothing will stop it. It has started. Nothing can get in its way. Everything will be swept aside. In terms of Isaiah and what is happening in his own life, these were dark times. The kingdom was divided. Assyria had taken away the northern tribes. Everything seemed to be unraveling. Not on the divine side, to be sure. Jesus will reconstitute the kingdom, and this time it will stand forever. I love the words in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Our kingdom will not be shaken. All over the world, studying world history, history of civilizations that come and go. Ancient Rome, Egypt, Babylon, Syria, United Kingdom, perhaps someday the United States of America. They will come and go. Not so the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, notwithstanding the corruptions of so many governments, his kingdom is marked with peace, justice, and righteousness. Now, I love these words because I hear them every, <clears throat> every election season. People wanting peace. People wanting justice. Righteousness. In Christ we have it all. What people so desperately want from their civil government, we have in Christ. In this life, the preponderance is spiritual to be sure, uh, but it's not to denigrate the material to come in the life to come. Uh, politicians promise. What we generally get is the opposite. Become a Christian, you get righteousness and peace, joy, everlasting. In the 1970s, there was a rock and roller named Cat Stevens who wrote a song entitled Peace Train. I don't know if you're of that generation or not, maybe you've heard the song or not, but it's uh, really somewhat irrelevant. It's the cry of the heart of a man. Because out on the edge of darkness, there rides a peace train. Oh, peace train, take this country. Come and take me home again. Interesting to me that Stevens converted to Islam. The train long since passed him by. So many people are standing at the train station, wanting peace to come, wanting something to come that's better, wanting some type of promise of security and hope. When you know Christ, you get all of these things in an exponential degree that we cannot even fully imagine in this life. And the more we read the scriptures, the more we behold the wonderment of the great counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The, the hope of Cat Stevens is so vague. Peace train, really. Ours is a person, definite, 
historical, timely, and forever. The Christ has come and will come again, and the unseen will become visible. He delivers perpetually with an ever-increasing realization, and the good will eventually be seen. The greatest and the better will become the best because of Christ our Redeemer. Uh, the text uh, in Isaiah 9 reads, from then on forevermore, that the blessings of his reign have permanent duration, will never run out. And he doesn't even need our votes. He reigns and rules by virtue of who he is. Of course, as his sons, uh, we love him uh, and we follow him uh, because we are sons of the new birth. And he has made us so. And we are a part of the kingdom that's perpetual, everlasting, will someday explode in the visible reality of this world. And the world will watch in wonderment as he receives us uh, materially unto himself and blesses us. And because they knew not the Son of God, they will be perpetually on the outside looking in. The text of Isaiah 9 seals the promise with an eternal cause. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, the word zeal can also be translated jealous. That God is jealous of the honor and the glory of his King Messiah. We see jealousy in action. Uh, when our Lord in John 2 cleanses the temple because he's jealous of purity and righteousness and men have turned it into a place to make a buck, the way of man, profiting the things of God. Uh, but the eternal God and Father is jealous for the glory of his Son. The text also uh, appends another title uh, to God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Hosts is a reference to all the armies ever moved, all the navies that have ever sailed, all of the airmen who have never cheated, who have cheated gravity but for a season. They all serve the Lord God. He is the Lord of hosts. But not just physical armies, all of the armies, the angelic forces, and even the fallen angels, he's Lord over. Therefore, my friends, he can make all of this happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will make it also with respect to King Messiah. This seals the success of Messiah. Because the zeal of God the Father is jealous of the honor and glory due his Son. It's a great reminder. What's really more than a great reminder, it is a compelling reminder to know the Savior. To have gone before him on the cross and asked him for forgiveness of sin and guilt, for cleansing, 
because of all that he is and all that he will be. Uh, because of the success that's his, promised and given, sealed by the eternal God. And so, uh, I'm not unmindful that uh, there is gloom and doom in our culture. Perhaps you're struggling with some difficult issue in life. Uh, bad things happen to Christians too. We live in a fallen world. But the greater, more expansive context of our lives is that Jesus Christ is uh, our Lord and Savior. And he's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that we're part of his kingdom. And respecting the increase of his government, there is no end. That we are swept up in the greatest event of all time. An unseen kingdom, to be sure, but one day it will be seen. In the interim time, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so, that is, of course, the good news of uh, the Christmas season. It's all started. And we're part of it uh, because we're sons of the King. And so in the words of the hymn, joy to the Lord. The Lord has come.